0: Chapter 24 of The Secret Power. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Secret Power by Marie Carelli. Chapter 24. A great silence pervaded the Palazzo d'Oro, the strained silence of an intense activity weighed with suspense. Servants moved about here and there with noiseless rapidity. Don Elysius was seen constantly pacing up and down the loggia, absorbed in anxious thought and prayer, and the Marchese Rivardi came and went on errands of which he alone knew the import. Overhead the sky was brilliantly blue and cloudless. The sun flashed a round shield of dazzling gold all day long on the breast of the placid sea. But within the house blinds were drawn to shade and temper the light for eyes that perhaps might never again open to the blessing and glory of the day. A full week had passed since the White Eagle had returned from its long and adventurous flight over the vast stretches of ocean, bearing with it the two human creatures cast down to death in the deep Californian cannon, and only one of them had returned to the consciousness of life. The other still stayed on the verge of the Great Divide. Morgana had safely landed the heavy burden of seeming death her ship had carried and simply stating to Lady Kingswood and her household staff that it was a case of rescue from drowning, had caused the two corpses, such as they truly appeared, to be laid, each in a separate chamber, surrounded with every means that could be devised or thought of for their resuscitation. In an atmosphere glowing with mild warmth, on soft beds they were placed, inert and white as frozen clay, their condition being apparently so hopeless that it seemed mere imaginative folly to think that the least breath could ever again part their set lips, or the smallest pulsation of blood stir color through their veins. But Morgana never wavered in her belief that they lived, and hour after hour, day after day, she watched with untiring patience, administering the mysterious balm or portion which she kept preciously in her own possession, and not till the fifth day of her vigil, when Manella showed faint signs of returning consciousness, did she send to Rome for a famous scientist and physician, with whom she had frequently corresponded. She entrusted the dispatch of this message to Rivardi, saying, It is now time for further aid than mine. The girl will recover, but the man, the man is still in the darkness. And her eyes grew heavy with a cloud of sorrow and regret, which softened her delicate beauty, "'and made it more than ever unearthly. "'What are they? "'What is he to you?' "'demanded Rivardi jealously. "'My friend, there was a time "'when I should have considered that question "'an impertinence from you,' she said, tranquilly. "'But yours is the great share of the rescue, "'and your magnificent bravery "'wins you my pardon for many things.' "'And she smiled as she saw him flush "'under her quiet gaze.' What is this man to me, you ask? Why nothing? Not now. Once he was everything, though he never knew it. Some quality in him struck the keynote of the scale of life for me. He was the great delusion of a dream. The delusion is ended, the dream is over. But for that he was to me, though only in my own thoughts. I've tried to save his life, not for myself, but for the woman who loves him. The woman we rescued with him? The woman who is here? She bent her head in assent. Rivardi's eyes dwelt on her with greater tenderness than he'd ever felt before. She looked so frail and fairy-like, and withal so solitary. He took her little hand and gently kissed it with a courteous reverence. Then, after all, you've known love, he said in a low voice. You've felt what it is, though you've assumed to despise it? My good Giulio. I do despise most heartily what the world generally understands as love, she replied. There's no baser or more selfish sentiment, a sentiment made up half of animal desire and half of a personal seeking for admiration, appreciation, and self-gratification. Yes, Gulio, it is so, and I despise it for all these attributes. In truth, it is not what I understand or accept as love at all. "'What do you understand and accept?' he asked softly. Her eyes shone kindly as she raised them to his face. "'Not what you can ever give, Giulio," she said. "'Love, to my mind, is the spiritual part of our being. "'It should be the complete union of two souls that move as one, "'like the two wings of a bird making the body subservient to the highest flights, "'even as far as heaven.' "'The physical mating of man and woman is seldom higher "'than the physical mating of any other animals under the sun. "'The animals know nothing beyond, but we, we ought to know something.' "'She paused, then went on. "'There is sometimes a great loftiness, "'even in the physical way of so-called love, "'such passion as the woman we have rescued has "'for the man she was ready to die with. "'A primitive passion of primitive women at her best.' "'Such feeling is out of date in these days. "'We have passed that boundary line. "'And a great unexplored world lies open before us. "'Who can say what we may find there? "'Perhaps we shall discover what all women have sought "'from the beginning of things.' "'And that is?' he asked. "'Happiness,' she replied. "'The perfect happiness of life and love.' "'He'd held her hand till now, when he released it. "'I wish I could give it to you,' he said. "'You cannot, Gulio. "'I'm not made for any man, as men go.' "'It is a pity you think so,' he said. "'For, after all, you are just a woman.' "'Am I?' she murmured. "'And a strange, flitting smile brightened her features. "'Perhaps, and yet, perhaps not. "'Who knows?' "'She left him puzzled and uneasy. "'Somehow, she always managed to evade his efforts "'to become more intimate in his relations with her. "'Generous and kind-hearted as she was,' She held him at a distance, and maintained her own aloof position inexorably. A less intelligent man than Rivardi would have adopted the cynic's attitude, and averred that her rejection of love and marriage arose from her own lovableness and unmarriageableness, but he knew better than that. He was wise enough to perceive the rareness and delicacy of her physical and mental organization and temperament, a temperament so finely strung as to make all other women seem gross and material beside her. He felt and knew her to be both his moral and intellectual superior. And this very fact rendered it impossible that he could ever master her mind and tame it down to the subservience of married life. That dauntless spirit of hers would never bend to an inferior. Not even love, if she could feel it, would move her thus far. And the man she had adventured across ocean to rescue, what was he? She confessed that she had loved him, although the love was past and now she'd set herself to watch night and day by his dead body, for dead he surely was, in Rivardi's opinion, sparing no pains to recover what seemed beyond recovery. While one of the greatest mysteries of the whole mysterious affair was just this, how had she known the Mayan's life was in danger? All these questions Rivardi discussed with Don Elysius, who listened to him patiently without committing himself to any reply. Whatever Morgana had confided to him, and she'd invited much. He kept his own counsel. Within forty-eight hours of Morgana's summons, the famous specialist from Rome, Professor Marco Ardini, noted all over the world for his miraculous cures of those whom other physicians had given up as past curing, arrived. He heard the story of the rescue of a man and woman from drowning, with a motionless gravity, more taken for the moment by Morgana herself, whom he'd never seen before with whom he had corresponded on current questions of scientific importance. From the extremely learned and incisive tone of her letters, he had judged her to be an elderly woman of profound scholarship, who had spent the greater part of her life in study, and his astonishment at the sight of the small, dainty creature who received him in the library of the Plaza d'Oro was beyond all verbal expression. In fact, he took some minutes to recover from the magnetic shock of her blue eyes and a wistful smile i must be quite frank with you she said after a preliminary conversation with the great man in his own italian tongue these two people have suffered their injuries by drowning but not altogether they are the victims of an earthquake and were thrown by the earth's upheaval into a deep chasm flooded with water the professor interrupted her pardon signora there's been no recent earthquake in europe she gave a little gesture of assent. Not in Europe, no, but in America. In California, there's been a terrible one. In California? He echoed amazingly. Grandio. You do not mean to say that you brought these people from California, across that vast extent of ocean? She smiled. By airship, yes. Really nothing so very remarkable. You will not ask for further details just now, Professor. Professor and she laid her pretty hand coaxingly on his arm. You and I both know how advisable it is to say as little as possible of our own work or adventures, while any subject is awaiting treatment and every moment counts. I will answer any question you may ask when you've seen my patients. The girl is a beautiful creature. She's beginning to regain consciousness. But the man, I fear, is past even your skill. come. She led the way, and Professor Ardini followed, marveling at her ethereal grace and beauty, and more than interested in the case on which his opinion was sought. Entering a beautiful room, glowing with light and warmth and color, he saw, lying on a bed and slightly propped up by pillows, a lovely girl, pale as ivory, with dark hair loosely braided on either side of her head. Her eyes were closed, and the long black lashes swept the cheeks in a curved fringe. The lips were faintly red, and the breath parted them slowly and reluctantly. The professor bent over her and listened. Her heart beat slowly but regularly. He felt her pulse. She will live, he said. There are no injuries? None, Morgana replied, as he put his questions. "'Some few bruises, but no bones broken, nothing serious. "'You have examined her? Yes. "'You have no nurses?' "'No. I and my house people are sufficient.' "'Her tone became slightly peremptory. "'There's no need for outside interference. "'Whatever your orders are, they shall be carried out.' "'He looked at her. "'His face was a somewhat severe one, "'furrowed with thought and care. "'But when he smiled, a wonderful benevolence,' "'gave it an almost handsome effect. "'And he smiled now. "'You shall not be interfered with,' he said. "'You have done very well. "'Complete rest, nourishment, and your care "'are all that this patient needs. "'She will be quite herself in a very short time. "'She is extraordinarily beautiful.' "'I wish you could see her eyes,' said Morgana, "'almost as if the uttered wish "'should touch some recess of her stunned brain.' Manella's eyelids quivered and lifted. The great dark glory of the stars of her soul shone forth for an instant, giving sudden radiance to the pallor of her features. Then they closed again as in utter weariness. Magnificent, said Ardini, under his breath, and full of the vital light, she will live. And she will love, added Morgana softly. The professor looked at her inquiringly. "'The man she loves is in the next room,' she continued. "'We rescued him with her. "'If it can be called a rescue, he's the worst case. "'Only you may be able to bring him back to consciousness. "'I've done my best in vain. "'If you fail, then we must give up hope.' She preceded him into the adjoining chamber. As he entered it after her, he paused, almost intimidated, despite his long medical and surgical experience by the stone-like figure of man that lay before him. It was as if one should have unearthed a statue, grey with time, a statue nobly formed, with a powerful head and the severe features sternly set, the growth of beard revealing rather than concealing, the somewhat cruel contour of mouth and chin. The professor walked slowly up to the bed and looked at this strange effigy of a human being for many minutes in silence. Morgana watching him with strained but quiet suspense. Presently he touched the forehead. It was stone cold. Then the throat, stone cold and rigid. He bent down and listened for the heart's pulsations, not a flutter, not a beat. Drawing back from this examination, he looked at Morgana. She met his eyes with the query in her own, which she emphasized by the spoken word. Dead? No, he answered, I think not. It is very difficult for a man of this type to die at all. Granted favorable conditions and barring accidents caused by the carelessness of others, he ought to be one of those destined to live forever. But, here he hesitated, if I'm right in my surmise, of course, it is only a first opinion. Death would be the very best thing for him. Oh, why do you say that? she asked pitifully. Because the brain is damaged, hopelessly. This man, whoever he is, has been tampering with some chemical force he does not entirely understand. His whole body is charged with its influence. And this it is that gives his form its unnatural appearance, which, though death-like, is not death. If I leave him alone and untouched, he will probably expire unconsciously in a few days. But if, after what I've just told you, you wish me to set the life atoms going again, even as a clock is wound up, I can relax the tension which now paralyzes the cells, muscles, and nerves, and he will live, yes. Like most people without brains, he will live a long time, probably too long." Morgana moved to the bedside and gazed with a solemn earnestness at the immobile, helpless form stretched out before her, as though ready for burial. Her heart swelled with suppressed emotion. She thought with anguish of the brilliant brain, the strong, self-sufficient nature brought to such ruin through too great an estimate of human capability. Tears rushed to her eyes. Oh, give him life, she whispered. Give him life for the sake of the woman who loves him more than life. The professor gave her a quick, keen glance. You? She shivered at the question as though struck by a cold wind. Then, conquering the momentary weakness, answered, "'No, the girl you've just seen. He is her world.' Ardini's brows met in a saturnine frown. "'Her world would be an empty one,' he said with an expressive gesture. "'A world without fruit or flower, without light or song. "'A dreary world. But such as it is, such as it is bound to be, "'it can live on, a life and death.' "'Are you quite sure of this?' Morgana asked.' "'Can any of us, however wise, be quite sure of anything?' "'His frown relaxed and his whole features softened. "'He took her hand and patted it kindly. Signora, you know as I do "'that the universe and all within it represents law and order. "'A man is a little universe in himself, "'and if the guiding law of his system is destroyed, "'there is chaos and darkness. "'We scientists can say, let there be light,' But the fulfilled result, and there was light, comes from God alone. Why should not God help in this case, she suggested. Ah, why? And Ardini shrugged his shoulders. How can I tell? My long experience has taught me that wherever the law has been broken, God does not help. Who knows whether this frozen wreck of man has obeyed or disobeyed the law. I can do all that science allows.' "'And you will do it,' interrupted Morgana eagerly. "'You will use your best skill and knowledge. "'Everything you wish shall be at your service. "'Name whatever fee your merit claims.' "'He raised his hand with a deprecatory gesture. "'Money does not count with me, Signora,' he said. "'Nor with you. "'The point with both of us in all our work is success. "'Is it not so? "'Yes, and it is because I do not see a true success in this case that I hesitate.' "'True success would mean the complete restoration of this man to life and intelligence. "'But life without intelligence is no triumph for science. "'I can do all that science will allow. "'And you will do this all,' said Morgana eagerly. "'You will forgo triumph for simple pity. "'Pity for the girl who would surely die if he were dead. "'And perhaps, after all, God may help the recovery. "'It shall be as you wish, Signora. "'I must stay here two or three days.' As long as you find it necessary, said Morgana, all your orders shall be obeyed. Good. Send me a trustworthy man-servant who can help to move and support the patient, and we can get to work. I left a few necessary appliances in your hall. I should like them brought into this room, and then— Here he took her hand and pressed it kindly. You can leave us to our task and take some rest. You must be very tired. ''I am never tired,'' she answered gently. ''I thank you in advance for all you are going to do.'' She left the room then with one backward glance at the inert, stiff figure on the bed, and went to arrange matters with her household that the professor's instructions should be strictly carried out. Lady Kingswood, deeply interested, heard her giving certain orders and asked, ''There is hope, then? Those two poor creatures will live?'' ''I think so.'' answered Morgana with a thrill of sadness in her sweet voice. They will live. Pray God their lives may be worth living. She watched the man-servant who she'd chosen to wait on Ardini depart on his errand. She saw him open the door of the room where Seton lay, and shut it. Then there was a silence. Oppressed by a sudden heaviness of heart, she thought of Manila, and entered her apartment softly to see how she fared. The girl's beautiful dark eyes were wide open and full of the light of life and consciousness. She smiled and stretched out her arms. It is my angel, she murmured faintly, my little white angel who came to me in the darkness, and this is heaven. Swiftly and silently, Morgana went to her side, and taking her outstretched arms, put them round her own neck. Manila, she said tenderly, dear beautiful Manila, do you know me? THE GREAT LOVING EYES RESTED ON HER WITH GLOWING WARMTH AND PLEASURE. INDEED I KNOW YOU. AND Manila's VOICE, WEAK AS THAT OF A SICK CHILD, SOUNDED EVER SO FAR AWAY. THE LITTLE WHITE LADY OF MY DREAMS. OH, I'VE WANTED YOU, WANTED YOU SO MUCH. WHY DO YOU NOT COME BACK SOONER? AFRAID TO TROUBLE HER BRAIN BY THE SUDDEN SHOCK OF too RAPIDLY RECURRING MEMORIES, Morgana MADE NO REPLY but merely soothed her with tender caresses, when all at once she made a violent struggle to rise from the bed. I must go, she cried. He's calling me. I must follow him. Yes, even if he kills me for it, he's in danger. Morgana held her close and firmly. Hush, hush, dear, she murmured. Be quite still. He's safe, believe me. He's near you, in the next room, out of all danger. Oh, no, it is not possible and the girl's eyes grew wild with terror. He cannot be safe. He's destroying himself. I've followed him every step of the way. I've watched him, oh, so long. He came out of the hut this morning. I was hidden among the trees. He could not see me. She broke off, and a violent trembling shook her whole body. Morgana tried to calm her into silence, but she went on rambling incoherently. There was something he carried as though it was precious to him, something that glittered like gold. "'and he went away quickly, quickly to the canyon. "'I followed him like a dog, crawling through the brushwood. "'I followed him across the deep water "'to the cave where it was all dark, black as midnight. "'She paused, then suddenly flung her arms round Morgana, crying, "'Oh, hold me, hold me. "'I am in this darkness trying to find him. "'There, there!' "'He turns and sees me by the light of the lamp he carries. "'He knows I have followed him, and he is angry.' Oh, dear God, he is angry. He raises his arm to strike me. She uttered a smothered shriek and clung to Morgana in a kind of frenzy. No mercy, no pity. That thing that glitters in his hand, it frightens me. What is it? I kneel to him on the cold stones. I pray him to forgive me, to come with me. But his arm is still raised to strike. He does not care. Here a pale horror blanched her features. She drew herself away from Morgana's hold and put out her hands with the instinctive gesture of one who tries to escape falling from some great height. Morgana, alarmed at her looks, caught her again in her arms and held her tenderly, whereat a faint smile hovered on her lips and her distraught movements ceased. "'What is this?' she asked then murmured. "'My little white lady, how did you come here? "'How did you cross the flood unless on wings?' "'Ah, you are a fairy, and you can do all you wish to do. "'But you cannot save him. It is too late. "'He will not save himself, and he does not care. "'He does not care, neither for me nor you.' "'She drooped her head against Morgana's shoulder, "'and her eyes closed in utter exhaustion. "'Morgana laid her back gently on her pillows, "'and pouring a few drops of the cordial she had used before, "'and of which she had the sole secret, "'into a wine-glass full of water.' held it to her lips. She drank it obediently, evidently conscious now that she was being cared for. But she was still restless, and presently she sat up in a listening attitude, one hand uplifted. "'Listen,' she said in a low, odd tone. "'Thunder, do you hear it? God speaks!' She lay down again passively and was silent for a long time. The hours passed, and the day grew into late afternoon— and Morgana, patiently watchful, thought she slept. All suddenly she sprang up, wide-eyed and alert. What was that? she cried. I heard him call. Morgana, startled by her swift movement, stood transfixed, listening. The deep tones of a man's voice rang out loudly and defiantly. There shall be no more wars. There can be none. I say so. I am master of the world. End of chapter 24